Hello and welcome to Criticism is Dead, a weekly culture podcast about what we're watching and what it all means, if it means anything at all. I'm Pelin Keskin Liu, a producer and writer. I'm Jenny Jijang, a culture writer and critic. This week we're discussing Love is Blind Japan and Drive My Car, a reality show and a movie about the discrepancy between interior and exterior feelings in romantic relationships. Mm. Wow. That's beautiful. We did it. We found it again. We're such stars. How have you been this week, love? <laughs> I've been good. I guess uh, on the career front, I have a little bit of an update. I'm oh, yes. moving over from being like purely a, a writer, staff writer to editing. Um, so editing. Oh, big boss moves. Big boss. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know, like editing staff blogs and also freelance features and stuff so this is sort of my call out like invitation if anyone has freelance feature idea that they think might be a good fit for the new gawker the current gawker um which has a very particular sensibility but still i like open i'm open to many many topics because of a wide range of interests so yes anyway you should uh pitch me like Anyone who's listening to this who thinks and they have a good Jenny idea. is very smart and should be a fantastic editor oh, okay. uh, to edit your work. So you should be so lucky. Well, wow. Thank you. I will say it's like very interesting and in that it does scratch a very different part of my brain. Um, mm-hmm. It's yeah. much more sort of like you're looking at a, at a blackboard of problems like calculus or whatever and you're like trying yeah. to basically figure them out and solve them and slot things around and it's very yeah. satisfying in that way in yeah i think i will still continue to write occasionally but writing is a different somewhat torturous process at times <laughs> and it's it's oh, nice yes. to have some other things to do for most of my working hours congratulations i'm incredibly happy for you and it's the beginning of many more career steps which we already <laughs> know so. wow thank you yeah. so much Fallon. um most welcome, sweet and man. and how has your week been going it's been going well back to work uh mm. i had a bit of a tummy issue that solved itself by wednesday Ugh. um i've done a bit of in-person shopping which had been a while since i'd done that but That's like so after work one day yeah i just was like i'll go to soho and I was kind of like aimlessly wandering around, which I think is the best way oh, to go that's shopping. that's nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's always torturous when you're looking for a specific thing. And for me, I usually always have a specific look in mind, mm-hmm. um, which makes the whole affair very torrid. But I'm a sensual girl in that I like to touch and feel things. I don't yeah. really like online shopping. I'm all, my body type is also... Like, I'm very short, so I can't just be buying, go out here, like, buying shit mm-hmm. uh, online and hoping it'll fit. But I'll tell you what, mate, department store sales, still amazing. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah like, I'm not a big sale person because it's usually the shit that nobody wants. But department yeah. stores, because they have so much shit coming in and not, I feel like department stores are dying anyway. So not enough people are buying stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you end up getting some really sick deals. Like, I got a cashmere sweater for 40 bucks. Wow. Yeah, it's my first cashmere sweater. Can you believe? Isn't that nuts that I've never owned a cashmere sweater before? Yeah, I kind of would have pegged you for like a a nice cashmere, like a luxury wool kind of person. I mean, I am, don't get me wrong, but I also grew up poor. So (laughs) for me, like spending, I don't know, like 150 to 200 bucks on a cashmere sweater, it felt a little bit ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) I'm just, uh, I'm happy that I was able to (laughs) get my... uh, 
what is it stick a shock out the way and uh-huh. then um also get what i finally want so yeah that's that was a really fun. nice that's deal which de- which department store is in uh soho bloomingdale oh i yeah. to- always forget about that yeah dude well it's probably gonna shut down in the next okay. year knowing knowing <laughs> these stores but anyway shopping aside what's been on the docket for tv for you babe so I've been watching Love is Blind Japan. This is the Japanese version of the U.S. Netflix reality show that probably a lot of us know and uh, Ugh, love mess. to hate watch. Yes. Mess. Just mess. Yeah. This is the second overseas adaptation of the show. Uh, there's a Love is Blind Brazil, which I haven't watched. Mm-hmm. So Love is Blind, if you're unfamiliar with the concept... Uh, <laughs> The, <laughs> the wild concept, basically male and female contestants and, you know, the pairings are always straight. This is a very, like, heterosexual production. They mm-hmm. spend 10 days in these closed pods dating each other without, you know, ever seeing each other. So this experiment is supposed to see whether or not love is blind, hence the title. It's not until after a couple has agreed to get married, um, based on these, like, 15-minute conversations uh, that they can finally meet face face to face, and so then the engaged couples they get taken to a couple's like resort getaway. They finally get to know each other more. Then they have to live in a pe- temporary apartment together, back in sort of like the real life in real the real city, so uh, they can experience like what it is to live with each other, what it is to like meet each other's friends and and family, and to work yeah. at the same time. That happens for about a month. And then yeah. finally, they have to make it to the altar once they've been like in this relationship long enough. I'm pretty sure they do have like a contractual obligation to get to the altar. So yeah, and say yes or no. Yeah, like, they have to yeah. decide right then and there at the altar whether or not to to say yes or no to the legally yeah. binding marriage. So a bit of a I don't know. This concept is is kind of nuts. I think they're iterating on this more. The creators of Love's Blind they announced they're coming out with like a a couple like swapping thing like mm-hmm. riff on this i don't know it's a whole like ridiculous sort of thing but yeah i was watching love is blind the u.s version season two and love is blind japan around the same time they came out around the same time i was really interested in especially like comparing the two because <laughs> i knew yeah. there would be differences and i i have to say i ended up liking love is blind japan a, a lot for very mm-hmm. different reasons than yeah. the reason i keep watching love is blind u.s and yeah. Of course, the reason I keep watching the original of the spine is because it's just like trash TV. It's like drama, mm-hmm. fights, uh, terrible people, reality show nonsense. Uh, yeah. It's just very fun. In a sort of mindless way. Yeah. But Love is, Love is Blind Japan, it has like some of those elements still, but it's much more interesting, I think, as this window into especially like cultural differences and Mm -hmm. an entirely different take on dating relationships, marriage, and also the concept of like private public, because there's so much that's, you know, hidden behind these kind of different shields. So yeah. What about you, Pellin? How far along are you in Love is Blind Japan? I'm on episode eight. Okay. So So almost, is that the end or almost towards the end? Almost at the end. So it's the, I think it's the episode, basically the episode before the altar, like the the final marriage. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So like a lot of family meetups are happening. I agree with you. I think the main thing for me uh, with Love is Blind Japan, it scratches the Terrace House. Yes. But it's been a minute, but obviously because rest in peace Terrace House, I don't think they're ever going to. No, they're um, not. They're never going to bring that shit back. Still do miss it as a viewer obviously so i feel yeah. like this this kind of slot itself in pretty nicely 
Um, but yeah, that, that, um, the thing that was fascinating about Terrace House, like when you peel back all the layers of why it was entertaining to watch, was that public private difference, mm-hmm. which is especially fascinating when you're talking about a reality TV show. Yeah. You know, which by nature is opening everything up to the public, like allegedly, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah but just yeah. by participating in this, you're sort of eroding, um, eroding like your sense of privacy. Like there are things yeah. you want to keep hidden, but. By nature, like dating is such like an intimate thing. Um, mm-hmm. I'll say especially mm-hmm. like the way that a lot of the Love is Blind Japan participants, you know, conceive of it. It is like a thing that is serious for them. Mm-hmm. They are actually looking for a relationship. Most of them, they're actually looking for marriage. Yeah. Um, but dating is a very private thing. There is not as much PDA in Japan um, mm-hmm. or a lot of other Asian countries. They're like what happens sort of at home stays sort of in the, these more private spaces. So it's really yeah. like an intrusive kind of framework through which to to view this. So yeah, yeah. I totally agree. The private versus the public. Um, and even the way that certain cast members like present themselves in private versus public, what they say they want privately versus, mm. versus publicly actually, it's it's very different. I, I also really appreciated basically how the show explored very real like social norms conventions and challenges through these couples like not like not as in a didactic way but it really presented itself very organically through some of these couples who kind of more or less encapsulate or embody some of uh very common like actual like issues uh yeah or dating conventions in japan and Mm -hmm. elsewhere so do you know the couple minami and mori so minami they're yeah, yeah the Korean cosmetologists and the uh, half Korean, I think Minami is an architect, but mm-hmm. I thought that was really interesting because you see in them like these, this conflict that arises from, you know, Mori said he wanted someone who is like an equal to him. Um, mm-hmm. But when it came down to it, when they actually started living together, they spend more time together. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's just a fundamental incompatibility because someone yeah. like Minami She's a very direct in her speech, like straightforward, independent young woman who who yeah. d- actually wants like an equal partner in life. Yeah. And Maury, despite all the lip service he sort of paid to that, he actually just wants like a traditional housewife who gives mm-hmm. up her career to support his more yeah. or less. Yeah, uh, yeah. I thought that was like really relatable. Um, yeah, and again, it's that funny. push. Yeah, it, it's funny. Sorry to interrupt. Mm-hmm. It's funny how with when you do the comparisons between American Love Is Blind and Japanese, and like I don't want to keep doing this because it, I think it stands on its own. Yeah, as, totally. Th- as this version of the show, but y- you know, you you see someone like Shake be the mm-hmm. person in America who tells us who he is from the very beginning uh yeah. kind of looks like he's changing his mind and then finally doubles down yeah and that feeling of like you can't fundamentally change what it is that you want out of a relationship no matter yeah. how much of a scumbag you might be right yeah especially with regards to shake and this is like another version of that which is yeah. like the promise of the show of like converting people that don't agree um that love is blind is weak you know I and mean, i think that's that's you see it in in a couple like Minami and Mori as well, you know. Yeah. So it's yeah, interesting. Yeah. yeah, there's just like it's very very hard. It'll take like a a miracle or a mountain for like a lot of people to change what they're looking for. And I think in a lot of ways you just have to accept that. Yeah. Um So yeah, yeah, that by that way, like the this premise is is disproved sort of over and over again. Well, it's um, like the case for like all of these shows. Like yeah. this is something that we covered when we were talking about Love Island, where it's like. 
we want to think that these couples can be paired off and there's like this intimate, you know, lightning in a bottle chemistry that can never be broken by anybody else. And then new contestants come and the whole thing is just thrown into questioning of that feeling of like, well, actually, is the grass greener? Yes, of course the grass is greener. And then f- as as audience members, we want to hope that it isn't and that our grass is the greenest, right, through through mm-hmm. these contestants. And it's the same with this. is like the, the, the very shaky belief that maybe personalities are the only things that matter is mm-hmm. constantly called into questioning, which is like constantly battling this uh, maybe, you know, naive childlike understanding of heteronormative relationships where like... Or idealistic. Yeah, super yeah. idealistic where it's like, yeah, that's all that matters. And it's like these shows will always jut against that. Same with the with that new show that they've got coming up where it's about two, like it's about a bunch of couples that are on the verge of getting married and like, will they change their mind? Well, of, of course they will. They're, it's mess. Like, but... We want to see and we want to root for the couple that doesn't. Yeah. And I'll, I'll also name another couple that I thought was really interesting mm. in, in terms of what they represented in some way. Uh, Nanako and Odachi. Mm. So that is mm. the former ballerina and the comedian. I found it interesting because I, I grew up, I'd say, with a parent who, like Odachi, is very much into like outside persona versus inside persona. Mm. Um, so with, the outside world, you know, strangers or, or friends or coworkers, there is the need to be more charming, to be more amiable, to be right. just like a, a kind of nicer, better, brighter person. Yeah. And then once you retreat to home and home includes your family, that's when you can sort of throw off the, the outer layers and be comfortable, be yourself. And sometimes like that means like being not as nice of a person as you are to the outside world. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so I, I thought that was really interesting because you see this play out pretty much exactly the way that mm-hmm. Odachi is so funny and so outgoing when he's with his bros or when he's presenting himself in yeah. public in an event. But then he feels that when he's in in private with his family, he should be able to sort of chill and switch off. And, you know, that's his own prerogative. But that is just such a a different thing than Nanako was led to believe yeah. was, a switch was him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. If he said from the beginning, this is what I'm like in yes, private, yes. like I'm extrovert presenting, but I'm actually a massive introvert and I need to turn mm-hmm. off. That's one thing, but he never yeah. did. Yeah, he never did. Yeah. So again, like this, this uh, public-private switch up and mm-hmm. and what people say they want versus what they actually want or or are. Uh, yeah. Did you have like a favorite couple or even just like cast member from this so far? I found two. There's a couple that is my favorite because they're the most interesting to me, mm-hmm. and then there's a the couple that I root for and yeah. I love. So the couple let's that go I, for them both. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So the the couple that I found interesting was wataru and midori oh yes the the two american educated privileged like richer couple basically it it seemed like they were financially doing well yeah i think they're probably they're probably both like uh consultants or consultant Mm -hmm. adjacent what do they definitely like white white collar work i found them really interesting because i feel Mm -hmm. like they encapsulated the exact promise of the show which was the personality is their strongest suit and Midori is so pretty and Wataru yeah. not so much you know like mm. she can like definitely do average, better than him an average looking guy very yeah. average yeah. yeah like and you know you see her grappling throughout uh with that question and it's really interesting seeing her like like after the meeting with her mother 
um, that they both have as a couple. And then the conversation that she has with her mother where her mother's like, you're so arrogant. Like, what are you mm-hmm. talking about? You're not going to be able to do better than him. Or like, why would you think that you could do better than him? And I just, I thought that, A, I thought that was fascinating. Like, shout out to parents, especially mothers nagging their daughters. There's a lot of that happening <laughs> here. Um, yeah. You know what? And I'll also, and I'll also say it's interesting because in some ways you could compare this again somewhat directly to, to Shake and Deep D mm-hmm. on Love is Blind season two. Because again, like, they're, Shake is the one who has these hesitations or mm-hmm. uh these doubts about like his physical are we compatible attraction. physically yeah yeah, yeah. like yeah. is she beautiful is she sexy enough for me in the way that i'm looking for and yeah and you know midori is also like well i think the difference there is like there is some sort of objective uh degree of attractiveness mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but again she's like you know this guy and i really get along but is he enough for me physically like can yeah. i shape him into becoming a more fit or or you know better right because he <laughs> she gets him to go to the gym and lose weight yeah but the way i felt about like that versus with shake is is kind of different which mm. is interesting also to consider for myself yeah of course like it doesn't help that shake like presents himself basically as like a huge asshole yeah he's he's he self-prescribed villain you know so yeah yeah, yeah. he wants he wants that role at the end yeah. because he doesn't know how to deal with it otherwise yeah. in an honest way but yeah like midori and wataru it, it just seems like I, it's something that's kind of realistic like, yeah you can, you can kind of see how you can make a case one way or the other sure and also i'll say like uh i'm not going to spoil the the ultimate outcome mm-hmm. but i don't know if things maybe turn out a little bit unexpected oh okay yeah my favorite couple that i actually want to root for though is uh ryotaro and motomi oh they are amazing they're yes. amazing <laughs> And that is so... like something that really makes you be like, okay, I do have faith in this yeah, experiment. Yeah, it's fascinating. Like there are a couple that, especially for him, like immediately was like, this is it. This is the girl for me. And he doesn't waver. Like, well, mm-hmm. in so far as I've seen, uh, he doesn't waver. And it's just adorable because I think the part that really melted me was when he dyed his hair for her parents mm-hmm. um, because his her dad is such a hard ass and like mm-hmm. really doesn't like the show, doesn't like what she's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I, I love them. Uh, what about you? Who are your who are your favorite couples? I mean, in terms of people I, I really like, yeah, I, I'd say definitely uh, Ryotaro and, and Wintomi, like, yeah, they are the Cameron and, and Lauren of the... Of you know, Love is Blind season mm-hmm, one US mm-hmm. version. Like they seem like they actually really love each other and like they can get through this. Yeah. And that they're willing to sort of bend and adjust around each other in the way that uh, a lot of relationships will require. Yeah. Like there's always going to be compromise. Yeah. And so it's, it's especially yeah. heartening because I think Ryotaro is the hottest guy out of the entire cohort of men. So I'm just <laughs> yeah, really happy. I would that, agree. I'm really he's happy that he's the hottest and also the nicest and the, and the one that yeah. seems to be the most earnest. So he's a real uh, good one. Yeah. Good egg. Good egg. Yeah. But I'll say another interesting thing, according to the crew member on Reddit, is that apparently the weddings at the end of the show are symbolic rather than legally blinding, Mm. uh, legally binding versus, you know, in the American show, they are actually like legally married uh, at their weddings. Interesting. So, yeah, uh, I think there was, they said there was some like issue with paperwork, so they couldn't make that happen. But I thought that Ah. like transform the show a little bit into the direction of um again setting it up so that the couples maybe have a little bit more room to breathe um which is like not not as useful from a reality drama point of view but ultimately for 
proving out, you know, this, I don't know, thesis of like true love. Yeah. Like we can make true love. Like love is blind. Yeah. It's about, um, it's about the journey, not, not the destination. Yeah, yeah. It kind of helps it a little bit because some of the relationships are allowed to develop some more after the wedding. Like they aren't yeah. cut off in this kind of traumatic fashion yeah. at the altar. Like it, in with love is blind us oh yeah i mean would they have been able to find actual good contestants if it was legally binding i don't binding like i don't think so i mean it's a lot to ask for it's a um, lot dude like especially in a country like japan you know if you were to do this show in uh, many countries like outside the realm of like u.s and some western countries i feel like a lot of them would be like are you out of your mind like actually mm-hmm. be married and then divorce yeah. and then all of that like no um yeah, so. and there is such a stigma against uh, divorce in a lot of East Asian countries, including Japan, especially mm-hmm. when it comes to like uh, a woman who is divorced. And, and we see that also on the show, like some of the contestants uh, were previously married and they're like very hesitant even to, to share that in yeah. the pods because yeah. they're worried. But it's something that they have to like check in and see if that's okay. Yeah. With men, which, yeah. You know, it, they do that in Love is Mine US as well, but the yeah it's definitely far more serious um mm-hmm. it seems to yeah. be that way anyway yeah and one more thing i'll i'll remark on that i like this show for is its production value so mm-hmm. that is also very terrace house light terrace house yeah 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 um the budget was allegedly smaller than the u.s versions mm-hmm. but you know they got a really a lot of like really beautiful lifestyle moments which is what yeah I liked a lot about Terrace House in yeah. one aspect. So just like B-roll or like lingering shots of all the lifestyle, like interiors, uh, clothes, food, cooking, flowers, uh, all this sort of thing. Yeah, it's And funny. that's like very comforting to watch for me. Oh, totally. When uh, I think when the men walked into their wit quarters in the first episode, they were like, it's mm-hmm. very Japanese. And I was like, oh, God, Netflix. <laughs> like, have you guys just like amped up the Japan cultural mm. like aesthetic value? But it's yeah, it looks gorgeous. Like the pods are so much nicer. The, I the bridge th- where they meet oh, finally. So pretty. That's gorgeous. And then the vacation that a part of the cast went to after they got engaged. I want to go there. Like I mm. really, I really want to go to whatever that resort is. It looks so pretty. Yeah. Uh, no, I agree. It's, it's definitely more visually pleasing. Yeah, yeah. I'd recommend that anyone who is interested in reality shows like this, including Love is Blind US, watch this. I think it's also for fans of Terrace House. I think it's for fans in general of, um, I don't know, like shows that, you know, don't necessarily make you just turn off your brain like uh, a lot of reality shows that do. Yeah. Like this, I actually found it a little bit more thoughtful and, and illuminating in small ways. So that's that's kind of a nice surprise for a, for a reality show. We have some more movie recommendations for you, brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe. Every day, Mubi premieres a new film. Each one is hand-selected by its team of curators, and you know they have taste, baby. Yes. So from timeless classics to award-winning masterpieces to festival fresh gems, you'll get the best of cinema streaming anywhere, anytime. Uh, so one movie that I really want to check out on Mubi is Moving On by Yoon Dan-bi. This is a South Korean film about family and childhood and growing up. 
And movie compares it to Minari, which is a film that we know and love. So excited to see this. For sure, yeah. And I recommend Ryuchi Sakamoto's Coda, which is a documentary about the Oscar-winning Japanese composer and anti-nuclear activist. So I highly recommend this. You can try movie for free for 30 days at movie.com forward slash criticism is dead. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash criticism is dead for a whole month of great cinema for free. All right, Pellin, what did you watch this week? So this week I rewatched Drive My Car, which is now on HBO Max. I watched it a while ago back when it was in the theaters. And for those that have not heard about this film, it is directed by Rusuke Hamaguchi and it is based on Haruki Murakami, the Japanese author, his short story of the same name in his Men Without Women collection. So for our listeners that don't know, could you just tell us like what the critical reception to this film has been, Jenny? <laughs> um, I think it's been pretty universally lauded, is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's completely correct. So this is why it was on my radar when it first came out, which is why I went to go see it. it, it just so many critics that I'm fans of love this film. Um, I love Japanese modern cinema. Like, I think there's just incredible work with incredible directors coming out. I'm a huge Koreeda fan. This was my first Hamaguchi film that I ever saw. So just to kind of give you guys the TLDR of what the film is about, um, it's about an actor and theatre director, Yusuke. He is played by Hidetoshi Nishijima, a massive hottie, <laughs> ma- massive babe. Thank you for putting him on my radar. <laughs> it's basically about Yusuke's uh, relationship with his tv writer wife oto who's played by reika kirishima and his basically eventual multilingual production of chekhov's uncle vanya he has a production in hiroshima so the bulk of the film is about that production in hiroshima it this film like we said it was critically lauded it's also lauded in the award circuit so it has been nominated for four oscars best adapted screenplay best international feature for japan best director and best picture. Big so deal. big deal, huge mm-hmm. deal. So just a quick heads up for anybody that doesn't know, this film is very long. I mean, not that long. I think it's on the border. It's, it's of, long. It's, it's long. Okay, I, okay, it's long. Yeah, it's three hours. It's almost three hours. It's like literally just under a couple minutes. You know, I saw this in the movie theater. It didn't feel like three hours. I also didn't know going into it that it was going to be three hours. It was only until I think the final hour where I started feeling it. But I wanted to ask you, because I think you watched it at home, right? For the Mm -hmm. first time. Mm -hmm. How did it feel for you watching it at home? Well, I agree that... You know, oddly, at least the the first couple of acts, they they did like move along. Like I didn't really notice that I'd already reached the two hour mark. Mm-hmm. But yeah. at that point, it did feel like a little bit of a slog to get through the rest of yeah. the film. And yeah, it's not that there are like any particular like um, pivotal moments that I would have taken out because I think the pacing is pretty solid. But yeah, I don't know. Everything added together, it just was uh, maybe a little bit overly self-indulgent yeah um, i mean you know this is about um drive my car it's not about a road trip but certainly if you treat the three hours as a road trip the last hour <laughs> of any road trip yeah. is the worst and i feel like this is like yes. a perfect encapsulation of that so my i just want to get this out of the way uh-huh i've said this before in last week's episode <laughs> i will say it yes. again yes i think this film is fine uh i think there are very many great things about it that I love deeply but there is a part of me that feels like this is 
a little bit of hype. What do you think? <laughs> I know last week, you know, we disagreed about the worst person in the world. I was like, wouldn't it be funny if we <laughs> we disagreed and we just flipped the switch? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but no, in this case, I, I, I have to agree with you. I think yes, I think it's fine. <laughs> it's it's a decent to like pretty good film. I I do think it's. I don't like to use the word overrated, but I do think it's it's gotten a lot it's of a hype. Bit that yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's fine. It's yeah, I wouldn't even put it in like a top, you know, like a top five, a top ten of recent memory for me. Well, I didn't put it in my top ten of last mm-hmm. year when I was mm-hmm. doing my rankings. Like it was mm-hmm. like maybe at fourteen or fifteen. You know, <sighs> let's just talk about the things that we liked. Uh, first of all so you know many of the feedback that this film has gotten is that it's a quiet masterpiece and mm -hmm. it's just i just find it interesting when we're talking especially about films from like japan or asia (laughs) like Mm -hmm. the adjectives used uh anyway (laughs) quick quick aside just just they're always they're interesting they're always interesting yes uh but I, I agree with that assessment, though, like in terms of literal quietness. I think that's why it is that way. Like there are points, there are many scenes, there are sequences where music is just completely cut out. Um, mm, yeah, it's just it's just silence and dialogue and that's it. And I think that's such an important device when you do want intimacy and that is provided. And I think it is a very intimate film. Um mm. And I really like that about it. You know, the biggest strength of this film is the way that it handles restraint with regards to... Well, I guess, let let me just quickly, again, go on a tangent. What do you think this film is about? Well, I guess there's grief. There's regret. Like you mentioned restraint. Um, Mm -hmm. I'd say, yeah, restraint, self-control, especially, you know, when you add in the younger actor, Koji, that's a big part of his arc. uh, Mm. How much self-restraint does he have and it turns yeah. out not much at all mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. yeah there, it's trying to also say something deeper about art and like meta sort of reflections on art through mm-hmm. the play uh, uncle vanya that uh mm-hmm. yusuke is is you know directing mounting at the at the hiroshima theater all of these things that kind of like meld and like how much can you know and accept a loved one i think is also a part of it yes um, through both yeah. Yusuke and also his driver. It's trying to tackle or say a lot, which I think is like pretty typical, especially mm-hmm. considering the source material. Like Murakami is, he he loves to return to a lot of different themes and uh, yeah. you know sort of char- kinds of characters and and settings that he, he reuses. Like he's fascinated with a lot of these ideas. Yeah. So I think that makes sense, like reflected in this. Uh, film no totally i also think that this is essentially a film about masculinity whether or Mm. not it was trying to say it or not your lead is a protagonist that does not know how to communicate yeah and that restraint you know his his need for restraint and the way that he pours himself into work that these are inherently i would say masculine themes or like themes about masculinity and the follies of it yeah and especially compared to the way it presents uh femininity which is like so much of this yeah he says like himself like the the sort of dark hole at the center of uh his wife who he couldn't reach and yeah again that's like a pretty fundamental like murakami thing he loves contrasting the man and woman um and especially like the way that he he uses female characters is very uh hmm questionable interesting questionable like yeah very very much him but yeah Yeah. totally and i think like at the core of it this this question of you know how much do you really know 
the person mm-hmm. that you love yeah. uh, the most in this world? How much do you really understand and know the interiority of the love of your life, for yeah. example, right? Um, yeah, I love that question because it's universal no matter what. I think the part that I grappled with, and we can get into this a little bit later, mm-hmm. but like the thing that I reacted a little bit like strongly against was this idea of the mysterious woman that yeah. does not uh yeah like you said like this dark hole this black void and it's interesting because you know i recently watched hamaguchi's uh earlier film asako one and two and it's it also like deals with this question of a woman that doesn't really know what it is that she wants or is a bit of a mystery in terms of the decision that she makes but i liked it a lot more uh even though his protagonist in that uh is the woman and she is a mystery in terms of she does not explain herself to the to the audience ever but it still makes more sense than otto the wife in this because i mean don't get me wrong i feel like her opaqueness is intentional because we're trying to put ourselves in the position of the protagonist in this who is yusuke but it just felt very uh gazy like you know we talked we talked about male directors uh and and their treatment of of female characters and i think in this it just felt really like almost fantastical you know like al- almost like fantasy elements to her which i thought was i mean i get it but at the same time it just felt with her paired with misaki yusuke's driver who then kind of takes over the role of like the female counterpart uh, you know after the first hour of the film they're both uh very opaque yeah i'll say like i do think my hunch is like maybe hamaguchi tried to save this by you know there's that f- moment where misaki watari the driver she's telling mm. yusuke i think they're like finally becoming more familiar they've become more familiar with each other they're mm-hmm. like they know each other's personal stories and she tells him at one point she's like you know i don't think there's like some a noble mystery at the center of your wife. I think yeah. it's just like, yeah, you know, the fact that she could love you, but also yeah. uh, sleep with other men. It's not a contradiction to me. It's just no. like, yeah. sometimes that's just how people are. Yeah. So she kind of like breaks this um, kind of dispel the notion of uh, the unknowable, like feminine mystery or something yeah. like yeah. they have, they have her basically spell it out. But yeah, that's it, a good point. Yeah, yeah. but it, it mm-hmm. is hard because, like, this whole thing is presented from Yusuke's, like, frame of mind. Yeah, and yeah. And that's yeah. the way he sees it. That is the way that I am 100% sure uh, Murakami wrote it. Like, he yeah. loves to do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I like that moment because I did feel that it uh, helped dispel this a little bit, like, where she's basically, like, wake up, you dumbass. Like, it's not yeah. all about women being, like, a noble, like, manic pixie dream girls or whatever. Yeah. Um, and like you put her on a pedestal you assigned the mystery to her you never really asked her or confronted her about any of this like you didn't stand up for yourself you didn't talk about your hurt you didn't talk about what she's doing you didn't ask Mm -hmm. her to explain herself yeah um i don't know anyway so i personally love any kind of film that tackles the unseen or the unsaid in in a way that feels overt to the audience and i think because it's so hard to do that like how do you do that without confusing the audience? So, like, whether it's Yusuke and Otto's marriage, whether it's Koji, the younger actor, like, his scandals and the way that, like you said, he doesn't have any restraint. Like, we don't really see him bug out, but we know that it's Yeah, happening. it all happens off screen. It's so good. And I feel like it mm-hmm. makes it even more, like, eerie or unsettling 
um yeah. that he does that you know like why would you do yeah. that <laughs> like um it's it's incredibly incredibly good in like frustrating you as the audience which you should be frustrated yeah i thought that was good yeah too. and that eventual like downfall which brings me to why I didn't and why this film ultimately disappointed me. Mm -hmm. For some reason, the final act throws everything that it built out, for me anyway, everything that it built up out the window and tries to do something, I guess, to tie it all up. I'm basically talking about the point where, you know, spoiler alert, Koji gets arrested, taken away, and then the, the road trip that Misaki and Yusuke take to her hometown. And the eventual emotional breakthrough that he has, that felt like something out of a completely different film. And I don't Mm. know why Hamaguchi thought that that's what he needed to do to get us there when it felt so deliberately built up and built up and built up. And it just felt jarring to me. I know you talked about the final act being the point in which you started like checking, I don't know, checking your watch or whatever, but... (laughs) <laughs> what was it about that third act that didn't that stopped it for you? Yeah, I think maybe we're, uh, our issues are somewhat related, uh, if not the same. But the way that basically the emotional breakthroughs with each other, you know, all the way from their road trip, there from where they tell each other their like confessions, like yeah. what is the thing that they regret most, yeah. like what are the things that they did or did not do, rather that you know potentially could have saved someone they love. Yes. Like, all the way from that to, yes, that sort of climactic moment on the snowy hill. Mm. They're, like, hugging each other. They're spelling out. Um, everything is just spelled out. It's yeah. it's spoken into the air in a way that is... It was, it was corny to me, frankly. Yeah, um, dude. Yeah. Like, there is a reason people are like, show, don't tell uh, yep. for for this medium or, or for a lot of other mediums. Because it, so much of the stuff, you know, you can maybe intimate it from other things... Uh, you don't have to just stick it in there through dialogue that is, again, delivered like quite uh, stiffly because that's who the characters are. They're sort of repressed, like stiff people in a lot of ways. Yeah. So it just it didn't really hit for me. And yeah. I did not like how everything depended so much on uh, just like listening to these lines of dialogue. Yeah. But because the film has had that, especially in the second act, so much. Where whether it's the conversation with Koji uh, in the back of the car, um, mm-hmm. or, and whether it's the one yeah. that he has with Misaki too, just uh, you know about yeah. like when they're smoking the cigarette, it, it's a lot of that. So then for for there is a lot of that so, and monologuing and yeah. um, the moments from the play also like in the final act, like mm-hmm. they go on forever. For, yeah, I mean I don't really know Chekhov like that. I think Hamaguchi is a fan of Chekhov because he brings it up in Asako 1 and 2 which is the only other film I've seen by him. Um, but that that breakthrough, that climactic emotional scene felt like something out of a mid-budget TV show honestly, which <laughs> it, like I said it just sits very awkwardly in the film and it just left a bad taste in my mouth. Like it felt a little bit like well, I've talked about this always like sticking the landing is sometimes the most important thing that you can do like you can have a mid-tier movie the whole way through if you stick the landing it's overall a good film because you did it like you conducted the whole thing like in a way that feels graceful and this just kind of clunked out towards the end to me mm-hmm. um especially the last few scenes with misaki the denouement basically of the film I, d- I wasn't sure why we needed that you know oh where she's in you know she has her new life in korea yeah 
with uh, um, it felt really I, I agree uh, it, and also like i was a bit confused i was like is that another dog is that a different dog is that the same car did he give her her car or did she get the exact same car but different i'm confused yeah. um, and also it's like in uh covid times yeah it's so like current age covid times <laughs> um, i also thought that was just like what is this adding it's not yeah. really adding anything except being like okay misaki made it out of there and yeah she has a new life which is good but you don't again you don't need to spell that out you don't need no, to show that really it's don't. Yeah. It is almost a problem, like a meta problem or reflection of like this issue of restraint and not yeah. having enough restraint. Yeah. Uh, like in the, this this final act, like uh, Hamaguchi went went wild. Yeah, like, he, someone he, should have rain- someone should have reined him in. Yeah, I think the main thing is that the questions that it tries to tackle throughout the film sometimes you don't need the resolution. Sometimes it can just hang in the air of like this mm-hmm. person has so much regret about how he was with his wife you know like regret is something that sometimes has no resolution and i think like emotionally as an audience that's kind of what i wanted i wanted my director to tell me like yeah sometimes adulthood is just dealing with your regret it just sits in your stomach um and you just learn to live with it and you learn to forgive Mm -hmm. yourself where you can and not when you don't want to uh, and I think that's what I wanted. And I, yeah. Anyway, so all in all, I think this is a good film. I think it is worth watching. I really, I personally really struggle to understand why this film has been such a hit with critics. Um, but, you know, the exploration of grief, regret, it seems to be the point that many critics applaud. I think the goalpost of time has been widened enough uh, that it should have done a little bit of a better job. Like, you've got three hours. So this week for culture, we are going to talk about Zoe Kravitz and Robert Pattinson in their little PR flurry for the new Batman movie, which I'm going to see later, actually. Really mm. excited about it. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> could you tell us a little bit more, Jenny? Like, why are we, why are we covering this? Well, Is it because we're just massive horny <laughs> wankers that love to see pretty people be pretty? I Maybe. mean, they are very beautiful. It can't be denied. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> by, it's been all over headlines and, and social media lately because... Yeah. They are stunting all over the red carpet. They are like yeah, doing photo shoots. They're doing videos together. The chemistry is there. And it's very reminiscent of, you know, marriage story, Oscar Isaac, Jessica, yep. Sta- Jessica Chastain, like everything that two hot co-leads do to sort of sell their movie or their TV series or whatever they're trying to, to, to hawk to you. Um, it it feels like reminiscent <laughs> of a time, right? Which is what we talked about back then, where, where sex is selling again. Like it's okay for us to admit that sex sells, and we're going back into overtly trying it. Mm-hmm. Um, and who's complaining? Not me. Not me. Right. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what I want to know is that in like looking through, you know, all these various, you know, red carpet photos, these mm-hmm. these cover shoots, these videos, whatever. Zoe Kravitz is really doing the work. I'd say yeah, she's responsible she's for like, she, yeah, for like 80%, yeah. if not more of just the, uh, the chemistry. Like she, yeah, she smolders naturally. Oh, yeah. And yeah. she's really bringing that. Rob is also he, smoldering. He looks great, of course, but yeah. he's just like not selling it quite as hard as her. Um, no. But yeah, Zoe Kravitz, shout out to her. I still really miss High Fidelity on Hulu, which is canceled. Rest after in peace. One season. Bring it back. Yeah. She yep. was great on that. Um, yep. And I think she she's good in general, but she also really brings the looks, which is important. Yeah. My favorite thing is honestly her her looks, uh, the dresses, the little like cat inspired. Yeah. Um, she's definitely doing the heavy lifting because Catwoman is maybe one of the sexiest female characters of all time <laughs> uh, in cinema. So shout out to her. 
uh, being cast in that role because I think she is also one of the sexiest female stars that we have in recent times also. Mm-hmm. And she knows how to pull a look off, like the yeah. hair, the dresses, like shout out the to- The makeup. Yeah. yeah, like shout out to all my girls with small tits still doing it. You know, we're out here. <laughs> Big up She's doing some Ella. like interesting cutouts like in her red carpet. Oh, the little looks. kitten dresses are yeah, gorgeous. Or the yeah. little like- uh New form of like boob cutouts. Uh, yeah. Very yeah. innovative in the space. Yeah. There was, there was like one photo that recently got released of her crouching down to like lick some milk off of, out of a plate. Like what? a cat in her like, cat. yeah, it's, uh, okay, it's very hot. It's very hot. And there's just like, you know, the, the tweets going around of like, oh, my review. I started barking when I saw Zoe on screen or whatever. <laughs> like, I get that. Yeah. Like as a bisexual representative, I agree. She is, uh, fantastic and doing a great job. My aside is that. I feel like Zoe's auditioning Rob to be her next man after Channing, just because you know her roster of men is just gorgeous. Like she just she does not know how to pick an ugly man for herself, <laughs> and it's just fascinating watching all these like the the press uh, going around of like magazine covers of of them together, and I I think they make a very very handsome couple. So they would they would. Yeah. He's uh Rob Rob is still dating Suki Waterhouse, right? I did not know he was dating someone. Yeah, I think yeah. so. I think they might. Suki Waterhouse even started a TikTok or something. Damn. I don't really know. Oh. Um, I think they are both taken, but you know, we can just accept this for what I this think, is. Which I, is I, I, I'm putting a pin a, in that. I'm putting mm, a pin in that. All right, um, all right. Yeah. Apparently, the film. There's been some talk that sh- the sexual chemistry in the film is not that great. Really? Um, yeah. Okay, so, so not we'll even see. as good as like what it is outside the film. It's fine as long as we're getting it somehow. That's I don't true. care how. <laughs> so this is fantastic, you know. Yeah. So if you are watching anything you think we should check out, let us know at criticismisdead at gmail dot com. Find us on Instagram and Twitter, criticismisdead. You can always DM us or add us there. Whatever we like mm-hmm. to, we like to chat. Yeah, um, we do. Check out our Substack, criticismisdead.substack.com, for extended show notes, including links as well as extra links. Send and me links. <laughs> as always, everyone, thank you so much for listening. Please rate and review five star only on your podcast app mm-hmm. of choice. Tell a friend about us, etc. You know the whole deal. Uh, thank you so much. See you next week. See you next week. Bye bye. Criticism is Dead is produced by Pelin Keskin Lu and Jenny G. Jong. Our music is by Rika. Our artwork and design are by Sarah Macias and Andrew Lee.